there's just something fantastical about the use of melancholy, puppets, stop motion, and the eerie, beautiful music by Danny Elfman. Something about that combination, it's just this eerie, magical wonderland that I want to be consumed by. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. That's That's got to be a good way to start a new year, right? Close Watch, Episode 11. Rob here. You can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcatchers, as well as crookedtable.com. If you can leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify, it would really help get the word out about the show. A lot of fun stuff planned. But this episode, we're talking about 1988's Beetlejuice, and I'm joined by Briaz Muday from the Killer Waffles and the Geeky Waffle Network. And this was a lot of fun for, for us to dig into because this is a movie that both of us have a long history with, and uh, we, we delve into a lot of Tim Burton's career, just kind of in a broader sense as well. I'm actually going to pull, uh, there's going to be a section of this conversation that was pulled where we ran through his filmography for about 10 minutes. So you could probably find that by now or soon thereafter on the Crooked Table YouTube channel. So keep an eye out for that. But for now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about 1988's Beetlejuice. From the director of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Adam and Barbara are... Ghosts. What's the good of being a ghost if you can't frighten people away? Their house is being haunted by the living. Maybe the house could use a little remodeling. And they can't scare them into leaving. They're dead. It's a little late to be neurotic. So they're calling on Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Who's no ordinary ghost. Yeah, you don't want his help. Can you be scary? What do you think of this? Now, the party's over. You want somebody out of the house? I want to get somebody out of your house. <laughs> but the fun has just begun. It's showtime. Learn to throw your voice, boy, your friend, fun and party. Not bad. This is amazing. Want a cigarette? Oh, no, thank you. Oh, yeah, here I come, baby. He's guaranteed to put some life... Attention, keyboard shoppers. ...in your afterlife. Michael Keaton is Beetlejuice. I'm the ghost with the most, babe. Welcome to Close Watch, the show where we get to know our guests through the movies they love. On this episode, we're going to be talking about 1988's Beetlejuice, and I am honored to welcome to the show Bree from the Geeky Waffle and the, and the Killer Waffles, and you, you're waffling it up over there. So welcome oh. to the show, Bree. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Robert. It is great to finally be on Close Watch. I know, I know. It's uh, not that much different from formerly known as the Crooked Table Podcast, but it's a slight, slight rebrand, so a slight, slight shift in focus here. But before we get into, uh, into Beetlejuice, tell people a little bit about who you are and what you have going on. If they haven't heard the, what is this? The, like, I don't even know how many podcasts we've done together, either on Geeky Waffle or Killer Waffles or one Straight of my shows. Video, it's your it, show. Yeah. Yeah. God, so many. I don't, yeah, we're like double digits almost at this point. I know, I right? 
Yeah. Well, I'm Bree. I work in the good old land of Hollywood. I'm actually a podcast producer for a very famous franchise called The Bachelor. And I've worked in casting, I've done acting, all that good stuff. So Candace, who uh, created, well, what was formerly known as Geeky Girl Gab, which is now known as the Geeky Waffle, she came to me with the idea. And we're, we're like, yeah, let's do podcasting since we've been best friends for a while. This is a good way to keep in touch. And it's just blossomed over the years. So we have the Geeky Waffle podcast, which you've been on. We have Straight Out of Home Video, which you've been on. Have you been on the Star Wars podcast? I have not yet. I'm considering how big a Star Wars fan I am. I'm surprised that hasn't happened. Yeah, I know. So we got to get you on Space Waffles at some point. Got to hit up Arzu for that. And we have uh, a Taylor Swift podcast that's run by Maggie Lovett. Another Star Wars podcast, which I believe is on hiatus right now. And then, yeah, you've been a guest on my new one called Killer Waffles, which is a horror podcast. So, yeah, that's kind of I I don't sleep. Robert is basically <laughs> what comes down to it. I do way too much and I love it. <laughs> well, you're also you're also doing a horror podcast. So you're, you're fine with not sleeping, clearly, because you're just constantly terrifying yourself, I guess. It's funny, though, like. I knew we've touched on this briefly too, as we talked about with our with me going on to franchise detour. We're talking about Chucky. I used to be terrified of horror movies when I was little, like Scaredy Cat. I remember going to Universal Horror Studio, Universal Studios, or their horror nights in Orlando, and I hyperventilated from a clown shoe. Like, but now I'm like, oh my gosh, let me go see it. Yes. Can I watch was it, it? Was it an it? Was it an it haunted house or something? Was it one of those? No, it wasn't. It was I literally avoided all the clown house. Like I avoided the one that was this full of clowns. I was like, I'm not gonna go in there. So I was safe. There was Jack, who's the universal's like clown. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. Created. He was in the maze, and I was just like, I'm avoiding looking at him. <laughs> it literally, Robert, was like the end of the night. As everyone's leaving, we went down a way we hadn't gone. And I saw the clown shoe and I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to pretend like I'm tying my shoe. Bad. I made that mistake. I made that mistake. I looked up. The clown shoe was right by me. I hear a little honk honk. I just start. <laughs> like I start backing away, hunched over. I don't even see the guy's face. I am that terrified. My friends are like, dude, she's like really scared. Can you like, please go away. <laughs> I, I, unbelievable, just the 180 shift I've, I've come along. I don't know it about myself, but right. turn into a baddie, apparently. I'm just dozing <laughs> after a horror movie. I'm like, nothing. Yeah, no, I, I totally, I totally feel that because I live in Florida. I'm like two hours from Universal and I've still never been to Halloween Horror Nights because I don't like those kinds of things. I had an experience <laughs> when I was a kid where I was in a haunted house and it freaked me out. It was really graphic. And it, I, so I, I'll watch most horror movies, 
not like human centipede level back thing, but anything, exactly, Exactly. there's no creativity or artistry Mm -hmm. to that anyway, but like haunted houses or anything that's literally in person in my face, not, not about it. I wa- I, I, I'll laugh now. I go into yeah. them and I just laugh. Really? And I'm like, wow. <laughs> I'm jovial. <laughs> I need to, maybe I need to like face that fear at some point. You should. Now that post, not that we're post COVID, but like, right. you know, now that we're further along in COVID, I don't know. I don't know when I'm going to feel comfortable going into a, oh I haven't God. even been to a theme park like that, let alone, Gosh, like no, a, let alone an environment and close space where people jump at your, in your face. <laughs> I don't know how much I feel like now I just have a built in excuse why I don't I don't I don't do that. You do. Yeah. But I so I I live close to Universal Studios now in Hollywood. And the last time I went, my friend was like, let's just go to I think it was Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And normally I would have been like, no, I went in it. I was fine. I (laughs) again, I don't know the 180. (laughs) <laughs> that happened but I was fine I was laughing smiling I didn't get scared the only time I had a jump scare was during the Stranger Things haunted house there uh-huh. and it only because I was talking to my friends and then I turned around and was the Demogorgon Demogorgons are right by me and I was like ah they gave me a <laughs> But that was it. The rest of the yeah. time, my friends were hiding behind me. And I was just like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe eventually when things are a little less scary, you can still wear your mask and you can face those fears. Maybe, maybe. But even even at a young age, I was definitely intrigued by horror. We On Franchise Detours, we talked about, as you mentioned, the first Child's Play the first Evil Dead has has a, a stage musical adaptation of sort of like Beetlejuice, which does yeah. now or it did. I think it clo- I think it closed last year, but it was it was open for a couple of years. So even as a young child, I was into Beetlejuice. Like Beetlejuice was a huge thing for me. What was your first experience, or if you remember, what, what your first experience with Beetlejuice? When did that happen? What's your history with this movie, and why you wanted to talk about it? I remember the cartoon first and foremost that was one of the questions i was gonna ask yeah oh yeah so because it came out the movie came out in like 1988 yep somewhere around there and yeah i was i was definitely not old enough for the movie yet which i don't think it's like one of those things where you're like oh it's a certain age but i just saw the cartoon first and that on, honestly like sparks my love obviously Beetlejuice is vastly different Lydia and Beetlejuice are vastly different in the cartoon version but it was my first experience with Beetlejuice and I'm obsessed Robert with Beetlejuice and the movie my bed sheets are black and white stripes <laughs> my curtains are black and white stripes I painted black stripes on my white bookshelf my mother got me a Beetlejuice jewelry like box. <laughs> I'm obsessed. I wow. love this movie. I think it's honestly peak Burton at I a time when agree. he was the, the best director, the most creative. We'll get into this, I'm sure. But honestly, like his vision, I think though, of Tim Burton's movies 
I think I saw Edward Scissorhands first, and then I saw Beetlejuice later. That makes sense. His vision has always just been magical. There is just something fantastical about the use of melancholy puppets, stop motion, and the eerie, beautiful music by Danny Elfman. Something about that combination, it's just this eerie, magical wonderland that I want to be consumed by. It's also, I think, was at its at this point when this movie came out, Tim Burton had only directed Pee-wee's Big Adventure from yeah. which came out in 1985, which people are listening to franchise detours, that there might be an upcoming episode about Pee-wee in the future. So keep an eye on that feed. But but this is what I think people are referring to when they say, like, when they use the ter- terms like Burton-esque. If you're saying, oh, that looks like a Tim Burton movie. And this people said that about movies that Tim Burton wasn't even involved in. Things like Lemony Snicket's infor- uh, Series of Unfortunate Events yeah. or, or uh, anything that has the Addams Family, which he did not direct, which he had nothing to do with. Well, now know, he's he really didn't. doing... I'm like, this isn't Burton-esque because it's not even him. Right. But, okay. Even Nightmare Before Christmas, he didn't direct, but he was involved, yeah. obviously, producing and writing and stuff and stuff like that. So, oh, but people think he directed it all the time. And I'm they like, do. No. Yeah, they absolutely Not do. him. <laughs> and it's, they're I, like... <laughs> Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I will not stand for this Henry Selleck erasure. Yeah, exactly. Especially because he also directed Coraline. Yep. A lot of people dictate towards to Burton as well. And I'm like, he had nothing to do with Coraline. Right. At least with Night Before Christmas, he, he actually, it was the story by. He created these characters to a certain extent. But he still didn't even write the script. Exactly. Exactly. But this movie is everything that they are that people are talking about when they talk about Tim Burton. Like to me, this is the most quintessential Tim Burton movie. This is where he established he worked with Elfman on Pee-Wee, but this is where that that their aesthetic really crystallizes for the first time. Yeah. And it shines as well. I keep hearing the song in my head right now. It's just <laughs> It's so good. Well, in preparation for this episode, I've been listening to, I listened to most of the Broadway cast recording of Beetlejuice, which I never heard, which is interesting. Oh, and then being on Broadway. How was that? Honestly, I went in knowing nothing. I knew none of the songs. I crazily bought a fourth row ticket though to see it. And I was like, if I'm going to see it, I'm going to see it. And I had my green hair at the time. And when I was waiting, someone turns to me. They're like, oh, did you dye your hair to see this show? (laughs) I was like, no, because I'm not going to pay $600 to dye my hair to see a show. Right. (laughs) I just wanted green hair. But again, maybe that's why I had green hair to begin with from the very start. Because I love Beetlejuice so much. But I, I sat down. Some people next to me, they, they had like, oh, you're going to love it. We already saw it. It's nothing like the movie. And I said, okay, that's all I need to know. So I took a moment. I said, separate this from the movie. And I had a magical time. 
it sounds to me, based on just listening to the soundtrack or most of the soundtrack today, it sounds to me like it's a, a combination of the movie with some influence of the animated series even because mm -hmm. there's like a period of it in which Beetlejuice and Lydia are on the same side. They're aligned, which yes. never happens in the movie. Never like ever happens. In literally, the he's just in the movie. Spoilers for a 30 something year old movie. <laughs> in the movie, he she's she's essentially his child bride for for yes. a, a sequence. Yeah, it. I was like, we're going to get into talking about how creepy this is. Looking back, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I don't think we should have put that part in. But like, it works in a weird way for the movie. Yeah. But it's still so creepy to think about. It's tricky because Beetlejuice is essentially designed to be the most vile person ever. Just by nature. Like he's. Yeah. And here he he'd be me too in about two seconds. Yeah. He's really funny. Yeah. In the musical and like breaks the fourth wall. There's a really funny funeral part, which I know is crazy to say. <laughs> Delia hires Charles to be Lydia's life coach. And she's his and Delia is that's his her secret lover. Yeah, it's it's they change like they make a lot of changes, but like it. It's not bad changes. Right. You know, like hmm. you have Lydia going to like the netherworld. That's cool. That's a cool yeah. idea. Again, feels like the, the animated show. Yeah. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. The, the animated show, she was constantly popping back and forth. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Honestly, I was so enamored by everything. And there's just a lot of spectacle going on. I when bet. You watch yeah. The show as well. And I'm really upset that it closed. I've seen pictures back. of the, the sandworms and all of yes. this. Oh my gosh, the sandworms. I was so cool to see on stage too. Just I'll bet. how they did their sets and everything, the costuming. It was honestly a great time. And I would recommend anyone to go seeing it, but it's close. But you can find the soundtrack on Spotify if you're there at you least <laughs> wanting to, to get some taste of, of what the Beetlejuice musical is like. So, so your introduction to this was the animated show. Yeah, 100% uh, it was. And then based on that, did you discover later on there was a movie based on it or was it? Yeah, it's when my obsession with Tim Burton started after Edward Scissorhands. And my mom loves the movie too. My mom is like a really big, like she got me into a lot of like weird things, like old sci-fi movies. Like she introduced me to Ed Wood. Literally, he inspired me to want to be an actor. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, wow, people who are strange and unusual, they can be in the spotlight. It makes me so sad, Robert, to see the decline of two people who inspired me so much. I'm not saying like decline. Like, I think whatever. I, I think Amber Heard is an awful piece of human. And Johnny Depp needs to get hired for work. But also, I don't think Johnny Depp's been at his finest either, acting-wise. Mm -hmm. Like, right. Tim Burton hasn't been in his finest directing-wise. And to see their decline, it it really saddens me because they inspired me so... Like, I would not have thought acting was an option for me, probably, until much later, had it not been for me watching his movies. Was it the, the 
was it the character of Lydia specifically or what what is it about his movies I guess just that that sensibility seeing it up on screen and seeing ideas that the studio system would normally be like that's too weird for us honestly yeah because most people like the mainstream and I was always a little off a little weird a little I don't know I was just like the little weirdo kid you know what I mean right. and like when a weirdo kid sees like a, <laughs> a weirdo movie like Shine, it it's a different perspective. And I think like what speaks to me about his work, it's like it normally involves someone like Lydia who feels different, who doesn't feel like everyone else feels misplaced. And I think I felt that a lot because I'm I'm mixed, I'm biracial, mm-hmm. and. I never knew really where I fit in. And then I always liked a little more of the creepier stuff, you know? So I never really, I think for some, I I met a lot more people who have similar tastes to me now, but like growing up, I didn't really. I grew up in Iowa and then we moved early on to, to Florida. And it's funny, Florida is where they filmed Edward Scissorhands as well. And it has yep. like all those houses lined up. Florida has a weird vibe where it's like every house looks similar in suburbia. And if you look different, they're going to stare at you type of thing. So it's like when I saw like Edward Scissorhands and Beetlejuice, it's, it felt like, oh, you can still be someone even though that you do feel a little misplaced and out of the norm. But there's a place for you. And I think that's what really inspired me to just express my creativity because I felt it's okay to. Yeah. And I think Tim Burton felt that way a lot too. And and I think it says a lot for his strength as a storyteller, even though he didn't have a hand in writing most of these movies that we're talking about, just as, as a visual storyteller and guiding that perspective to the screen that so many of his movies, Edward Scissorhands is essentially part fairy tale, part satire about exactly what you're saying about how small, small town, you know, America, suburbia is just as judgmental and confining as, as the big city or, or any other, any other community. And I think in Beetlejuice, Lydia's whole story is feeling ignored, feeling neglected. Charles and Delia, their whole thing is just like, oh, Lydia, go and do that. Go, go, you know, go, go mind your own business. Go just read your books or whatever you're doing. And like the whole point is that she's not being heard. And uh, a part of her story that I think that the, as we touched on that the stage musical delves into a little more is this is a girl who lost her mom, presumably not that long ago. It doesn't sound like Charles and Delia have been together a long, long, long time. It sounds like it was a rebound type marriage, probably within the last year or two, her mom passed away. So it's not like it's been a long, a long thing. So she is now not being heard by anyone. And the movie, I think the whole point is that she is so desperate to be heard, to be friends with someone. She makes friends with ghosts because her family is literally (laughs) not paying attention to her, you know? Yeah. And it's like she's taking the time to see what's around her as well. You don't expect to be able to see ghosts, but she does and then gets swifted off into this world. I I always like the part in the attic when she talks to them and it's like they almost forget that Beetlejuice exists because Mm -hmm. it's like they're making their own little family in a way. Yeah, yeah. 
And and I always forget when I watch this because I've seen it a, a million times. I would like we said I was a fan of the animated series. I had a lot of the toys for this movie. I probably have them in a box somewhere else. And I always forget like the first seven eight minutes, like the whole build up to the car crash with the Maitlands and that whole thing. Like I forget that they. It's very heavily implied that they were trying to conceive and having trouble with that. And so that really underlines how they, why they, they bond so quickly with Lydia that this is like the, the child they never got yeah. the chance to have. Yeah. 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 Their death is always so sad too, because it's like, you just want them to live their life as this happy couple. And then they get stuck in their beautiful home which they can't even do anything about. No, they they leave and they, they get teleported, I guess, to Saturn. Is that what Beetlejuice said at some point? Yeah. Oh, you like Saturn? He's like, oh, you've been to Saturn? Uh, sandworms. Uh, I hate them myself. <laughs> like that whole thing, uh, which we'll get to. But that's what's the, the brilliance of this movie is that their story is so sad. Lydia's story, she literally is is planning her suicide. She's writing her suicide note at one point in this movie, in this comedy movie. Which says a lot about how Tim Burton, how his macabre sense of humor marries concepts that shouldn't be funny, but it has such depth touch where it works in this movie and it's dark, but it doesn't feel like it doesn't, it doesn't, it meshes with the, with the rest of the story. It meshes with the, in the same movie where she's saying things like my whole life is a dark room, which is clearly supposed yeah. to be darkly comic. Or like you said, the whole strange and unusual line. I know I have a, I have that written on the tote bag. What what is it about? I guess Burton's sense of humor that he's able to have lines of dialogue like that, or visuals like we were saying, where the like the waiting room where everyone in there is very apparent how they died, and yeah. um, <clears throat> the person at the at the window is like, oh, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have had my little accident, and holds up her her slit wrists. And how does, what is it about that, that I guess that works for you either at a young age or now, and how has that changed? I think I've always had like a dark sense of humor. I think growing up and being bullied, really, (laughs) you find dark things humorous. It's like, okay, I can either let this destroy me or just laugh about it. You know, Mm -hmm. I think laughter gets through pain a lot easier. So I think that's where I've always just gravitated towards dark humor. Life is weird. And no matter what's going on, I think you can find humor in it. That's why I always like horror movies that have humor to it because life life is weird. Life is funny at times and it's never just one way. So I think that's why I always gravitate towards stuff like that. But in this movie, too, with like Lydia's relationship with the Maitlands, it's she teaches them that it's okay, like to be okay with their death. And they teach her to be happier with life. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you could do that without expressing it through humor in a way. Yeah. One thing about this movie that I think has, I, I have really grown to appreciate more watching it now as an adult than watching it as a kid and and just you know, enjoying Michael Keaton's 
over-the-top performance, which believe me, we'll get to in a, in a minute, is that it, it boils down to a culture clash movie in a way. Yeah. It's it, in a way that a few years later, a movie that, that Burton produced but didn't direct, Nightmare Before Christmas, is using the, the different lands of the different holidays of being basically a cautionary tale of, hey, don't just go into someone else's holiday and just be like, I'm going to interpret this how I want to and take over and you know what I mean? And steal their ideas without really understanding the culture that it that it's based on. This movie is a similar concept, only the cultures are the living and the dead. And yeah. the Maitlands are really judgmental of the Dietzes without really getting to know them. And the Dietzes are really judgmental of the Maitlands. <laughs> and it's, it, you know what I mean? And, it, and it's, and Lydia is like this go-between literally and and metaphorically between the two because she's alive but wants to be dead at this point in her life well, she she's feels um, dead feels, on yeah she feels dead on the exactly and and then at, at the same time she has to like you were saying she has to come to come to appreciate both sides and they have to come to understand each other which is why the movie ends so hopefully for either people like you who related to Lydia but also just people in general they just have it they have a better understanding and respect for one another. Like they live in the house harmoniously. Neither side wins. If this is a turf war, exactly. it, it comes to a truce by the end of it. Well, yeah, because they're, they have to be able to live with one another. I think at the end of the day, because when in the movie, they want to make a spectacle of the Maitlands. You know, remember when the father's like, oh, this will be a good tourist hotspot, you know? Yeah. And I think it's, it goes to show you, it's like what um, Barnum and Bailey did, putting the freaks on display. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and absolutely. And still we on display like that. But it's also easy to want to exploit another person or a group of people that you don't understand without, but without seeing their suffering without seeing yeah. their pain. You're just like, oh, these people, they don't have feelings. Like that Delia is constantly like, oh, she says at one point to Lydia, like, I could teach you, I have an opportunity to teach you something here. You need to take any, in every situation, you need to take control or something like that, she says. And it's not until during one of the, I think one of my favorite little moments in this movie where that starts to turn, where Othos doing the seance and they're, they're you know, materializing and then starting to decay, where then Charles is like, okay, okay, Otho, that's enough. Time to stop this. And he's like, I, I can't, like, he's not putting on that bravado that he was doing before. Like, oh, the ghosts. I know all about that. And my, I'm an expert in blah, 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 or whatever bullshit. It's like very, not to get political, very Trumpy. He's like, no one knows more about paranormal than I do. Right. <laughs> it's like that vibe. Well, actually, you're, you're doing an exorcism, you dodo head. Like... <laughs> But um, then you see it's like the real fear of them leaving this yes. plane of existence. And I think it's showing someone suffering like that is putting it in plain view of them, which is why I think they all have a change of heart at the end. Right. Absolutely. And I think Otho is an interesting character, too, because this movie even there is there's a reference here that I didn't really catch before because Glenn Shaddix was openly gay in real life and in this movie he his character is played very flamboyantly 
there's a line at one point where he's like, oh, I'm an expert in the paranormal. And one of the dinner guests is like, oh, paranormal. Is that what they're calling you people now? Thing, mm-hmm. Which I never really got that until recently that that was a dig at his sexuality. That's how I read it. And I thought that yeah. was interesting, too, because one, this is a movie in 1988 in which most movies that had any member of the LGBTQ you know, community on screen, it was always, almost always the butt of a joke. That wasn't really, the joke wasn't really directed at him. The joke was really like, look how terrible this woman is doing to Odo. Yes, exactly. Uh, and and it, in, in a way, I think it explains why, like there's a little bit of Lydia's, Lydia in Otho. There's a little bit of that, him feeling like he doesn't belong, that that he's strange and unusual, that I think underlines that he's had to put this facade over it yeah exactly exactly Mm -hmm. and it's a different way he wants to feel oh you need me let me just be overly grand because that's how people are going to try to make me be anyway so I'm just going to do it myself right type of thing to hide really what you're really feeling yeah. And I, I think Glenn Shaddix, who we should point out is the voice of the mayor in Nightmare Before Christmas. Yes, he is. So he's so underrated in this. Like, I, I legit think Otho is so much fun in this, he in this is. role. Honestly, all the characters are so good. All the actors are very good, which is interesting. I want to talk about this as well, because I don't know if you know this, but Tim Burton's first choice for Beetlejuice was definitely not Michael Keaton. no. Which I wonder, I, I did a little research today. So I'm wondering which person you're going to bring up because there's a couple of things that I've seen. Sammy Davis Jr. That's one that I saw. I saw yeah. something earlier that mentioned Arnold Schwarzenegger and I was like, I don't know how that would work. Uh, Sammy Davis Jr. I could see. Like could that would be that as well. And honestly, I could see it be really powerful having yeah. him as Beetlejuice and displaying this outcast ghost even you know what I mean I think it could have been really powerful and good but I saw what producers were suggesting were fat white men and then someone suggested Keaton to Burton and and Burton was unfamiliar with him and then ultimately agreed to go with him but and I love Keaton as well and I think he definitely embodies this character he's amazing at it And I want to say, like, I don't know if anyone else could play Beetlejuice as good as him. But I do wonder what a version would look like with Sammy Davis Jr. as Beetlejuice. It's one of those alternate universe castings where you're like, I that would be a very different movie. Like, I feel like Sammy Davis Jr. would almost bring a like a maybe I'm projecting, but I feel like it would he would bring a whimsical, more like a Willy Wonka style twist to it because he doesn't have, he didn't have the same manic energy that like Michael Keaton brings to it. So I wonder how that would play. But yeah, thematically, it would it would definitely work. You just imagine a diverse person. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. In 1988, playing an iconic character such as Beetlejuice and how that would resonate with people. I wonder how big it would be. And especially, I want to say, because people always think like Tim Burton doesn't want to cast people of color in his films. And I I like having, knowing his first, you know, choice was a man of color is very interesting to me. Not only that, just uh, the year after, he cast Billy D. Williams as uh, Harvey Dent, who yeah. was intended at some point to become Two-Face 
which of course didn't happen because he didn't stick with the franchise and we got Tommy Lee Jones instead. So yeah, I think it's it's more the system laying those limitations on Tim Burton than Tim Burton demanding demanding that casting. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot of producers at the time will just suggest white people. I hate to put it bluntly, but yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a problem that Hollywood has been facing and trying to change over time and slowly but surely getting there. But I love Michael Keaton. I think he is fantastic at this role. And again, couldn't imagine him not doing it, but it would be, had been very interesting if Sammy Davis Jr. was the part. Yeah, yeah. I think it, yeah, it would have been, it would have been a a very bold choice, I think. Let's put it that way. Maybe casting casting Michael Keaton, who was early in his career a stand up comic and who had had a similar. I don't know if you've seen like Night Shift or things like that. Had that this vibe? Not a huge stretch. I think this is this is probably this is for my money one of probably one of my one of my favorite performances. It, it, it definitely Keaton. Like it's. I I have some random weird out there Oscar takes, but he should have been at least in the conversation for best supporting actor this year because he steals this whole movie, in my opinion. Like he's on screen for 14 or 15 minutes and and yet it feels like he's in the whole thing. And honestly, and he's so good. Like so good. So fun to watch. He shows up like he you get the tease of him with the newspaper. You get the the TV commercial about his bioexorcism services. <laughs> and then he doesn't show up until that the big scene with with Barbara and, and Adam until 46 minutes in. I clocked it. 46 minutes. That's exactly the halfway point of this 92-minute movie. And that's when we get the the whole seeing the exorcist 167 times. And it keeps getting funnier. I'm not gonna, I will destroy my throat if I do if I try and do the voice. But but that that iconic scene, which t- let's talk a little bit about what it was like for young Brie to see this movie, having seen the animated series, having presumably at that point still not really being into horror movies, to see Michael Keaton as this scary looking but ultimately hilarious ghost with the most. It's so funny. I never consider this a horror movie. It's horror influences though that's got a horror vibe it's what i like to call it's what i like to call spooky which means which to me is (laughs) it's it's got horror vibes but it's you could show it to someone who's not who's not into horror movies like my my wife doesn't like horror movies at all in fact when i on occasion i do show her one she's like why did you show me this i'm like i'm sorry i thought it was good um but this one she grew up with like like we did so i feel like by this point, I saw Scream. So I feel like I'm okay, oh, okay. With it. So I was like, saw Scream. That was a good thing for me. I wasn't sure where in your yeah, horror know, journey this I, caught I, you. So I was, I was I, five when this came out. I don't think I saw it when I was five, but I I probably saw it when I was like seven yeah, I definitely or something. Saw it later. I definitely yeah. saw it later. So it wasn't really young when I saw it. But by that point, like my mom had shown me like Plan 9 from Outer Space. I think it was, no, she didn't show me Rocky Horror Picture Show yet. I was older then. Well, huh. first time I saw Plan 9 from Outer Space, I got scared. My mom was like, why are you scared? Scared of the cops <laughs> are falling. 
Like, <laughs> I don't know. Being scared. I got spooked early. Um, yeah, no, I it was fine. Like, I feel like at the point where I saw Beetlejuice, like, I was fine with, like, horror aspect, like, horror adjacent stuff, I guess. But I just thought he was funny. Like, I was like, you, he looks gross. Like, <laughs> I'm like, just he's not a good looking dude in this you know what I mean like Beetlejuice isn't hot you know what I mean like he is good I mean I'm I'm sure there are people out there who are like thirsty for Beetlejuice oh Uh. 100% I'm sure he has sims (laughs) beetle sims but like just like sores he's he's eating bugs constantly he's just like yeah he's very gross but like his attitude his confidence his manipulation he is just a fun chaotic character Uh who doesn't really learn any lessons yeah he he, like yeah he's he is essentially like a lighter version of the joker he's an agent of chaos he just comes in he wants to maybe make some profit off of it but other than that he just likes causing stru- causing trouble but it, he's essentially the villain of this movie which i think oh, is interesting 100%. Um, uh, he's the title <laughs> character he's the villain and then the animated series turns him into like oh that beetlejuice he's a good he's got a good heart that little scamp yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that little scamp i know it's so funny they like go off and have misadventures together and i'm like did we ignore in the movie that he <laughs> wanted her to be his child bride yeah, Can yeah. we ignore this? <laughs> because they're oh. best friends and he's in her room all the time. Like, he is. <laughs> well, weird. Well, it, 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 it was the 80s. And there, was a, there was a RoboCop cartoon in the 80s, I believe. There was a Rambo cartoon. There was no limits. Everything was a cartoon. I don't know what children were, were watching RoboCop because they had the movie as a child because they shouldn't have. Um. But I'm sure there were there were some. We know you like Beetlejuice's sense of style. That much we know. The black and white stripes. We do. So there's that. Which I know again, I have like a, a black and white stripe dress. I'm I'm all out. <laughs> which is another Burton-y thing that carries Jack Skellington has a similar color scheme going on. I think there's a in the if I remember correctly, in like there's a the, the dream sequence, the by the sea number in Sweeney Todd. I believe he's yep. wearing the black and white striped uh, outfit as well and yeah. things like that it, so yeah that's carries over he's also worked with the same costume designer for a lot of movies i don't believe i don't believe she worked on this one though but in a lot he's had very the same costume designer for a lot of his movies yeah so she definitely knows his style down and i think it just became one of his signature looks too. Like Tim Burton's, no, he's not known for dressing like this, but <laughs> that became a just a signature pattern for him. Definitely, and it definitely spawned from Beetlejuice though, and carried throughout. Like we're saying, this is the this is the progenitor of everything we know Tim Burton as. Pee Wee has a little bit of that, like touches of it but it's what what we talked about with evil dead where that first movie you get like a hint of what sam raimi could do with this concept and then the second one you're like oh here we go like we're off and running and i feel like this is 
this is where he he really figured out his voice narratively, but also visually as we're getting into there. And this this script too was rewritten uh, a lot. What Tim Burton read beforehand when he agreed to direct us is not what it became. But from reading what the original story was, I'm not sure we would all like it as much. What was the original story? Like, what did you, what does it say? So basically, it's far less comedic. It's much darker, which could have been interesting because I'm all for it. But apparently the Maitland's car crash is depicted very graphically and had the couple screaming for help as um, they were being, as they slowly drown in the river. Which mm, okay. could have been a little scarring, I think. And yeah, and the, the movie as it is just cuts like the tr the car goes in, you start to see it uh, sink, and then it cuts away. Yeah, yeah. And instead of possessing the deeds and forcing them to dance during dinner, which is a very an amazing scene with Harry Belafonte Harry Belafonte song, which is amazing. The Maitlands cause a vine pattern carpet to come to life and attack the Dietzes by tangling them to their chairs. So that would have been interesting. That sounds, not to bring this up for like the fourth time, but that sounds Evil Deadish. It does. A little bit too. Very Evil Deadish, yeah. And then the character of Beetlejuice, I think this is like, I'm not sure how you feel about this. It's, he's like a winged demon who takes on the form of a short Middle Eastern man. Mm, I don't know about this. In the yeah, 80s, I don't exactly. think that would work the way that they think, think it would work. I don't think it would work anywhere. Especially then. Yeah. And is also intent on killing the Dietzes rather than scaring them. <sighs> this is the part that's gross. And wanted sex from Lydia instead of wanting to marry her. Yeah, see, I don't... This doesn't sound like a very, yeah, I, I think, yeah. yeah, I think that what he does here is such a delicate balancing act because if any one of the, these scenes in the movie as it is tipped too much in one direction, you would either stop finding Beetlejuice so fun or take one side much more strongly over the other because I think of the, of the Dietzes and the Maitlands, because I think mm -hmm. the Dietzes are, off-putting but colorful and then the Maitlands are nice but also bland and yeah. so you know what I mean like you mentioned Rocky Horror already and they're, they're very much a Brad and Janet style type oh uh, 100% and that every time I watch this every time I watch this I'm like oh yeah they're the leads of this movie like you think yeah, of Beetlejuice you think of Michael Keaton obviously you think of Winona well, Ryder Gina Davis is so good she is good I'm not saying they're not good but you think <laughs> of, when you think of Beetlejuice in the collective consciousness you think Michael Keaton you think Winona Ryder yeah I for me then is Catherine O'Hara oh I and then her. along with her is the disgusting in real life Jeffrey Jones but but it takes a while for you start to realize oh yeah Gina Davis who was a huge movie star soon like around this time Thelma and Louise was just a couple years three years away I think and Alec Baldwin Oscar nominated actor everywhere especially nowadays for you know unfortunate reasons that those two big stars were in this movie and yet you're they're they're the leads but they're also a second thought to everything else that's going on and I think that's just 
a testament to how much, how impactful Beetlejuice and Lydia specifically are. Oh, but I think you you need them to be boring because they are nice because they're so nice because you know what I mean like I feel like their niceness and the colorfulness of the deets is balanced out you're like okay I don't know I like all these people in different ways well they're also like the everyday man to it if you have too many wackos you won't find groundedness and they're the ones who ground they're the grounded ones of the story which is weird because they're ghosts but they're grounded (laughs) well they're literally grounded they can't leave their house exactly right but what's crazy, too, is in this original script that McDowell wrote, they feature a second child who's nine years old, and it's a sister, and she can see the Maitlands and Beetlejuice, and apparently is the only person able to see them both. Hmm. And Interesting. she becomes the homicidal wrath in the film's climax during which okay. he mutilates her. Well, I got a rabid squirrel. That just sounds like a horror movie. Yeah, right. Like not a movie that not that it's not something that I would like. Well, elements of this sound interesting, but altogether, it sounds like like too much in one direction. And that's that's what Burton not only balances this with the characters, but then the comedy like there's horror, but there's comedy and it's darkness, but it's not it never seems overbearing in a way, if that makes yeah. sense. And you get sequences like the like the Deo sequence, which I can't believe it took us like up to that just a few minutes ago to bring that up, considering that it's probably the in the top two most, if not the most iconic scene from this movie. Yeah. So a lot of the rewrites were done by Warren. I'm going to mispronounce his last name and I apologize, Sarkin. And I really think that because of his writing, we like it so much. Yeah. Like, he adjusted everything to be Harry Belafonte, which I was like, yes. <laughs> Thank you. And they establish it, right? They establish within the, the story of the movie why Harry Belafonte's songs are like throughout the whole thing because Adam's listening to Harry Belafonte when he's working on the, the model of the town. So there's, there's a, a, a story, a reason for why, it, why Harry Belafonte is threaded throughout this thing, which I appreciated. Uh, one of the ideas in this movie that always really fascinated me as a as a kid and even now is that so Adam's building a model of the entire town, just like I guess yeah. a hobby of his. And that model What a hobby. <laughs> I know. Seriously. Hey, we <laughs> we do podcasts and they he does a model of the town. So like everybody's got their things. <laughs> but not only does he do that, the model is a connection to the to the netherworld which i find really like i don't know how that in what world that makes sense even within the world of the movie but i'm intrigued by the idea that this is like a microcosm of his town and beetle just can invade it and use it as a as a way to to reach out to them to potentially cross over and i and i was thinking and tell me if you think this i'm reading too too deeply into this because i tend to do that it feels like to me like I don't know if the movie is intending this, but it feels to me like that is that is Adam's art. That's his project that he's working on. That's he's putting his creativity and his passion into it. Yeah. It's essentially his his legacy, what he leaves behind, what the Dietzes find in the attic of his. So it feels to me like the movie is almost trying to say something about 
the art that we make or the legacy that we leave behind and how that transcends death and connects the world of the living to the world of the dead. Is that sound like anything or does it sound like I'm talking out of my No, I actually, honestly, I've never really thought that much into it. But now that you mention it, it does make sense. And it's a really, not macabre message, but it's really like what we make here can out, it does outlive us. Right. Because the whole movie is about crossing, like connecting those two worlds. Yes. So, you know, a part... One version, like I think a later version of the script, had the Dietze, or not the Dietze, the Maitlands becoming small, like how Beetlejuice got small and was Mm -hmm. staying in there in that little town. They like lived in the model house at the end. Okay. Which is interesting. So even to connect them further to the netherworld, which I like, again, this ending a lot better. But yeah, because... It's it's funny. Art is big. Like you were saying, that's his art. Dahlia has her sculptures. Yeah, exactly. She makes Lydia wants to do photography. It's really interesting. It's like all these people are doing something to leave their mark, whether they know it or not. Right. And I think that's, yeah, I feel like, yeah, I feel like that is an, an intentional subtext of the movie because it's so... So threaded throughout. And meanwhile, you have Beetlejuice, who's the opposite of those three characters, who has no intention of leaving a mark, at least not in that way. And it's more about just stirring shit up and, and he's only concerned with his own self-interest and, yeah. and not creation, but destruction. He's a, that's, he's a force of destruction, essentially. He likes to and, create the tea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And spill it everywhere. And you get that later on in the third act where he essentially takes over the movie officially, like of his 14 minutes, 10 of those are in the last 15 minutes of the movie when you get him and he takes over and he does the whole like carnival barker barker thing and, Mm -hmm. and uh, the child bride sequence, we get that, that, that really that really kinetic moment or sequence of moments where everyone keeps trying to say his name. And he throws the middle yeah. plate over her mouth and and Adam's teeth. And he's like trying to step on it. And it's, oh God, and this makes me want to watch this again now. It's so, <laughs> so good. Yeah, so I think that is, and if that's the case, that's possibly another reason why this movie resonated with us so much. Because we're creative people. We're interested in leaving something behind and creating things. And that's, as you were saying, this movie in, in inspired you to want to get involved in in, in becoming an actor and in, in the industry and, and all of that. So I think that's, it's, I think there, yeah, I think there's something to that. There really is. It's, I think it's one of those movies that has a little something for everyone. Maybe not everyone's going to like connect with it on like a level that we did, but I think it's a fun movie that people can enjoy. Granted, nowadays, the child bride thing is still really fucking creepy. <laughs> but <laughs> I feel like it was creepy back then, but he's supposed yeah. to be creepy. I there's like- nothing. Yeah, there's nothing about him that's supposed to be aspirational. That's true. Like, I feel like they almost did that to remind us, like, he's a villain of the story. And yeah. not just, like, laughable. It's like, no, this guy, he... He has no redeeming qualities really to him. <laughs> he, he's not someone you should like. So maybe let's do something really far-fetched so people go, oh, yeah, I don't like him. I don't right. want him to win. And I feel like maybe that's why they did such a crazy thing as that. 
Maybe yeah. that's why they left it in. Like, okay, yeah, let's leave this on. So that way he's, <laughs> we have to remind the audience, don't like this guy. You don't <laughs> want him to win. You want the Maitlands to win. Yeah. He, he, he cares so little about consent that he will literally <laughs> answer for her in her voice at the, during the, the wedding ceremony. Yeah. There is no consent with him. Yeah. Oh, why do I like him? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like every, I, I like him because he's so chaotic, but I don't like him for that reason. Right. Exactly. You yeah. like him because he loses in the end. If he won in the end, you'd be like, God damn it, Beetlejuice. Oh, yeah, if he won in the end, I'd probably be like, eh, what's wrong with everyone? Yeah, exactly. So we talked about the the stop motion and the practical effects in here. Obviously, that's a big reason why we love it. We we talked about Lydia's story and how uh, she's like, more more well-adjusted by the end of this movie. She's got her ghost friends and she she gets to be strange and unusual, but gets to be seen for who she yeah. is. Which is which is good because she doesn't like she's in a uniform because she's at school, but she doesn't seem like she's changed who she is or in any way. That's one of no. my that's one of my big issues with why I as much as the music is is great and the movie is iconic. Why, especially now having a daughter where I'm like, man, Greece sends the wrong message to young women watching this movie. It's like, you know what? Start smoking. Just wear really tight, provocative clothing and change who you. Yeah. Yeah. You want someone to love you for who you are, no matter what you are. And you're right. That's why Lydia is amazing. She is herself, no matter what. She's not losing a sense of who she is, but she's becoming comfortable with who she is. And that's exactly what you want. You want to be comfortable with who you are, not let anyone get you down for it. So it's like, it's really like an F you to bullies everywhere. It's like, you can't change me because I like me mm-hmm. for me, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think that's, I think that's essentially a big message of this movie. In addition to everything else we got into, and we didn't even mention Sylvia Sidney, who plays Juno, who won a Saturn award back in the day for this movie, which I yeah. blew my mind. She's great in this, but it's also like, really? That's who got the award. Okay, cool. I'll <laughs> well, take hey, it. I'm glad she was recognized though, because she was funny. She is She's really great. funny. Her delivery. Un- underserved with her, with her screen time as well. I feel like yes. we didn't get enough Juno. What's the thing about with the, the thing with the football team? at the end is which is like i'm not your coach (laughs) (laughs) i love that i love that good stuff oh Uh, i just love how all these ghosts too just are there at the end just because it is such like an accepting home at the end of it yeah exactly it's it's great the stakes (laughs) the stakes of this movie at a certain point are literally the secret of life beyond death getting out into the world which is gives gives the third act I think an epic feel which I really love. Normally I was going to ask what is this movie about in your in your in your opinion, but I feel like we covered that quite a bit. Is did, yeah. are there any moments or lines in this movie that were particularly impactful with you that we haven't talked about yet? I feel like everyone has that same feel of like I myself am strange and unusual. I feel like that line no matter how popular is still so iconic and you know what I mean like I felt that way I I resonated with her because of that but I feel like this movie has so many good gems to it that's just moments that are so 
either fun or heartfelt. Mm-hmm. Sometimes funny and sad at the same time. Yeah, exactly. She's always had this stagnant relationship with Delia because it's not her mom. Right. And she's having to conform with this woman. I think watching their relationship go from 180 is is really special about the film as well. Yeah. Even her dad being more accepting and just not caught up with him and having, like, as you were mentioning, Lydia's finally being seen. And I exactly. think she's being accepted by the people in her life and not just the dead. Right. <laughs> oh. Right. Yeah. But she still gets her cool ghost friends and gets to float around to jump in the line exactly. and, and everything with her with her ghost backup dancers and all that. But I, I think like the whole movie is about acceptance. It is. And that's all anyone's ever looking for is just to be accepted for who they are. So if that's one thing a person could take away from this movie is that, you know, mm-hmm. that, yeah. it's okay to be you. Exactly. Even if you're strange and unusual, don't worry about it. There's even there's a tribe out there for you. <laughs> yeah, even if you're boring as hell, like Brad and Janet, Adam and, uh, and Barbara. Which is funny, too, because that's Tim Curry in Rocky Horror Picture Show is another one of my hot Oscar takes where I'm like, where was that, oh, guys? God, I know. Oh, he's so good in that. Okay. So good in that. So that's another podcast. Shows but, yeah. are so, so political mm-hmm. it's not even funny well and this movie and rocky horror picture show not exactly amadeus or whatever they whatever they gave the oscar to it, that those years in this year at least it, it wasn't michael keaton who obviously wasn't even nominated which is which is rid- ridiculous to me yeah it, but at least it was kevin klein for a fish called wanda so it was a comedic performance so i'll give them that yeah, that, I give that them that. Anytime they, anytime, yes, exactly. <laughs> anytime they step outside of their person in a biopic playing themselves in an inspirational drama <laughs> bullshit, I'm like, yeah, but well, there's a lot more to cinema than these like three genres. And I feel like um, that's why I like this genre too. Is it's a little different. It's outside the box. And again, that's why I miss Tim Burton in his heyday with the practical effects because. It adds another element to it. And it, it's almost like reading texture in film. It just adds that other aspect. And it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, that, mad again. I always get so heated. <laughs> well, that being said, since going back to 1990, there was rumors, reports, et cetera, about a sequel. Would you want them to ever do that? Because I got to tell you, the idea that was bandied about in the 90s, the whole Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian thing sounds terrible. God, it does sound terrible. I'm like, God. <laughs> like, I hear there are those movies where it's like, this guy goes to Christmas or what's that? That guy with the plaid shirt. It's in Blockbuster, like everywhere. Earl, not Earl. Oh, Ernest. Yeah. Ernest. Yeah. It sounded like they wanted to be like an Ernest series. I'm like, stop <laughs> it. No, there was this thing with Hollywood in the 90s where every time they thought the sequel was just take them to a different place. Like I remember the mask Jim Carrey movie from the night from 94. Huge movie for me as a kid. I, I was the mask for Halloween and all that. Okay. So it's. 
So it's like there was a sequel that were being talked about with like them in Paris or something. And I'm like, why would that be the sequel? Why is it just take them? Oops, sorry, not for my water. Why is it just take them to a different place? And that's your idea for the story. Just have them do the same thing in a different location. So the idea of having Michael Keaton and Winona and preferably Tim Burton involved, like if those three were involved, even now, you know, you cake on some white makeup on Michael Keaton. You won't tell that he's aged 30 years and Lydia could have grown up in real time. Would you want, is there any version of that that you want to see? Or are you like, please just don't bother? I'm not sure. Have you read what's listed on IMDb for Beetlejuice 2? Is it the Ghost Hawaiian thing? Because yes, if that's the case. No, I don't believe it is. What does it have listed specifically? So they said that David Harbour is going to be in it. But I really don't, I don't know exactly what's true or not because so with IMDb, really anyone can write, submit something, but I feel like it needs to be verified. So I'm not sure. That feels like people just being, because of Stranger Things, that of course David Harbour would be in it or something. Yeah. Uh, I will I'm not, it's like the Maitland house blew up due to a gas leak. And then they're saying Will Arnett is playing the Jersey devil. And I don't know. Down to the netherworld. I I feel like I will, I will tell you this though. Best case scenario with those three. Maybe I would be down for that. It would depend on the premise for sure. But I will tell you this recasting either of them not into it any oh, like oh, it's michael it's keaton or bust exactly. don't be like it's johnny depp now playing beetlejuice or david harbour or anyone like no it's I, this is and this is why if i was doing a ranking of like michael keaton's most iconic characters it would be beetlejuice and then batman because we've had like six other batman since then there's only been one live action at least Beetlejuice and it, he owns that in such a way and he has such affection for that character I think and he says it's I one of his favorite Tim movies. I would do it without right. Michael Keaton and I feel like Tim Burton while we know he has taken some projects on that haven't been great I don't think he would take on a Beetlejuice sequel if he wasn't happy with the script just because I do feel with with like big eyes and Frankie and Weenie, I do think that the heyday Tim Burton is in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, and I would hope if they ever do a Beetlejuice sequel, which I know rumors are, are that it's going to happen at some point, but I, I don't know. But I would hope that it's it's meticulously crafted in a way that doesn't one dilute what the original movie was. Right. And two, how can, what would be the story that you would want to tell? What is there that's unspoken? Do we even have Lydia in it? I feel like it showed her very well adjusted. I don't know if you need to bring her back. Well, nowadays, I feel like it would end up being uh, Lydia and her children 
getting like getting involved in it would be a legacy cool deal i feel like True, is what they would end up doing I, but i don't know if i want like, that i don't either because then it feels like oh lydia's not a good parent and her kid feels miserable you know what i mean like that doesn't right. feel that's something like what harry potter did with the cursed child you know what i mean like yeah. it and that's why i really hate cursed child too because i don't feel it's actually how Harry would have reacted in certain situations. So mm-hmm. for me, I feel like, okay, you're just going to destroy this well-adjusted character that you developed in order to make a sequel happen, which doesn't sit well for me. So, and also, I don't know if I want a redemption story for Beetlejuice. <laughs> yeah. you, you know how some sequels are like, oh, let's redeem this villain. And do we really need him to redeem himself? Yeah, I don't want a, a prequel movie showing me how Beetlejuice became Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. <laughs> a yeah. Phantom Menace style, like baby oh. Beetlejuice. <laughs> him working for Juno as as her assistant. And then what causes him Cruella style to go bad? <laughs> I mean, maybe if he's trapped somewhere, maybe still in the waiting room for the yeah. longest time. And then he gets out now. He's like, oh, I made it out finally. Yeah, now it's you know, Michael finally. Keaton now. And yeah. there's an, and some kid who maybe has stumbled upon his number, gets a hold of him, and he's wrecking havoc in that household. Maybe I could go for something like that. Yeah. I feel like if you were, if we had to do it, one, I, again, I wouldn't recast. Michael yeah. Keaton it'd be as Beetlejuice, obviously. Especially since that character is under makeup and like it's like we said, you can make him now look like it, it wouldn't be to well, go back like to he's been in that waiting room for forever. Yes. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, they, 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 they can have made a little bit. Yeah. Joker. It's like God, I, I feel like I'm aged, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would almost prefer it's Mary Poppins return style, where he just oh, it's like decades have passed, like we were like what we're saying. And he comes out and it's a totally, and he gets involved in a whole new group, a exactly. whole new story. Not t- in that, it's not even a whole new story. It's it's still the, the kids grown up, but still in Mary yeah. Poppins. But like, I would, yeah, like I would rather see him stumble like, into a new adventure. I don't involved with Lydia ever. I think her story has been told. We're done right. with Lydia. It's a whole new modern thing. He could come out of cell phones, iPads, Apple TV, you know what I mean? So you you do have this technology, I think, with maybe he doesn't realize he can work with it, you know? So that could be interesting. But again, I don't want a whole Beetlejuice with so much CGI because I will kill someone. <laughs> you just, you, you now you, you nowadays you would uh, hashtag his name three times. Hashtag Beetlejuice, oh, hashtag Beetlejuice, hashtag Beetlejuice. And he pops up like uh, in like a little emoji. Uh, oh my gosh. <laughs> well, he probably would have popped up a lot if he, from my IG is like, hey, <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Boy, if, if let's say someone hasn't seen this movie, how would, which, which well, I don't know what's up with them, but if they haven't seen Beetlejuice, there's some young people who might be like, oh, I've heard of Beetlejuice. I've never checked it out. What would you say to them to get them to see Beetlejuice? And I was going to say, what other movies would you recommend if they have? But I feel like the first half of Tim Burton's career. <laughs> like first half of Tim Burton's career, plus the Adams Family movies, I think have to oh, be thrown so in there. 
so good. And then I like let's throw in some classics like the Munsters, the Adams Family TV show from back in yeah. the day. I could, you know, just be like, well, have you ever felt different from anyone else? Do you mm-hmm. like watching a ghost cause chaos? Watch it. Do you like practical or see a movie that actually has practical facts? You know what I mean? Like you don't get those very much. They're rare. So I I don't like to give too much away to people when I'm like describing movies. I actually just so, showed someone Secret Window the other day. They've never seen it. And I'm oh, yeah. like, do you like Stephen King books? Do you like suspense? And they're like, do you yeah, like, like Johnny Depp eating corn? This is for you. (laughs) This is for you. So I don't, I wouldn't say much. I just be like, this is a, it's a fun movie that if you feel different, you'll like it. Yeah. There's nothing not to like. There's, it's it's, it's really not. And, and as we've mentioned, it's, this is in 92 minutes, like so, so tight. We've talked about this with Child's Play and Evil Dead too. Like back in the day, like I have no problem with a movie being, two hours, two and a half hours, whatever, if that's what the story calls for. But there's something, there's something pure about a nice, tight 90-minute movie. You're in every scene, every moment is important. It tells the story and then you're out before you yeah. have time to be like, man, I like I'm, I need to, I got places also, to be. I'm they hungry now. Or character later. development too. Yeah. So it's not like you were lacking it. It, it doesn't, yeah, it, it's very fast paced for a movie from the yeah. 80s, even. Yeah. Oh, it's just such a good movie. It's I know great. I'm probably going to go watch it again. <laughs> Same. I have to finish the soundtrack to the musical. I didn't oh, get to right. listen to all of it today. Yeah. So that I'll, I'll jump into the beginning of Act 2. Uh, act oh, 1 yeah. ends and with the see, Deo. Like yeah. pretty much Deo. Was like, yeah, and Act 2 end, involves so. the child bride scenario. See, right? Otherwise I would if I, I would have had that answer too. <laughs> we had, if I had only I, finished it. I wish I remembered it. But it's so weird. I haven't listened to the soundtrack since I saw it live. Yeah, I should probably do that. Yeah, check it out. So I would, funny. I would, I would recommend. I, I, I felt, I felt a disconnect with the Evil Dead musical listening to the soundtrack because that's always the case with stage musicals. If you listen to the soundtrack, mm-hmm. you're like, eh, okay, that's fine. Like I was like that with Hamilton until I saw the Disney Plus thing, and then I last year and a half have been like, <laughs> I'm not throwing away my shot. Like constant. I have a, I have a <laughs> Hamilton Funko Pop on the other side of the on the desk. I've seen the Evil Dead musical also on stage. So whenever I listen to soundtrack, I just vision what I saw on stage. Yeah. Well, now I've seen it. Now I saw it a few months ago, a couple months ago. But before I listened to the soundtrack, I was like, eh, I don't know. And then I saw it and was like, okay, now I'm going to play that for the next few weeks on a loop. What the fuck was that? People who like don't listen to soundtracks of music Mm -hmm. until they see it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what I'm getting to. Like, it's, it's hard for me to, to care about it. Like, I don't have the context for this right. to really, exactly. right. to really connect you. to it. Yeah, exactly. So definitely we recommend check out Beetlejuice. If you haven't seen it, I'm sure it's somewhere online to watch. If not, just buy, just buy it on Blu-ray or whatever. Exactly. 4K. It's worth it. It's worth it. I it. Yeah. <laughs> I have it. I have it on DVD. And now after preparing for this episode and everything, now I'm like, I bet the Blu-ray is pretty cheap. I bet I could find it somewhere well, on so four. I don't. I, I have it, but I don't have a DVD player. Yeah, that's yeah, that's ironic. So, Bree, can you tell people first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking Beetlejuice. I'm glad we were a- able to do this and kick off another year of Close Watch with Robert Yannis Jr. 
tell people where they can find the Geeky Waffle and Killer Waffles and where you are on social media. Yeah, you can find the Geeky Waffle and Killer Waffles on every podcast platform. You can find all of our podcast house at thegeekywaffle.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Brie Osmude. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brie, for coming on. This was a blast. And uh, I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out where we're, oh, we have you. I think we have already talked about getting you on the Muppets on yeah. HS Detours later this year yeah. or later in 2022. So I we'll definitely <laughs> reconnect. Oh, I, I have Mad Max and then and then Spider-Man and then I think Muppets. And I'm already like, oh, when's the Muppets? When are we get into the Muppets? Let's make that happen. Oh, the Muppets are so, you know what I want now? Beetlejuice movie, but played by the Muppets. I would, I would love that. I would love, we've, we've had this exchange on Twitter a few times. I yeah. would love most things with Muppets. Same. Muppets, Muppets, anything. I'm like, sure. That, that sounds great. But yes. Like, yes. yes so. I want a day sequence with the Muppets. That's what I want in my life. Exactly. Right now. Exactly. <laughs> Can never go wrong with the Muppets. Muppets and Beetlejuice, they're, they're, they have this uh, same anarchic, chaotic spirit to them. So Which I feel I like that feel would mesh. Like, just to put it out there, Animal would have to be Beetlejuice. I feel like, yeah, I feel like he would. I can't yeah. imagine, like, Kermit can't pull off Beetlejuice. Hey, how's it going? No, he would be uh, Adam. Yeah, that wouldn't work. He would be Adam. Exactly. He would be Adam. And Piggy would have to, well, no, he would have to be Charles so that Piggy yeah, could be Delia. Right. That's yeah. what it is. And then uh, Scooter could be Adam or something. I don't know. <laughs> and Janice could be Scooter part. and Janice. <laughs> I think we're dead. Like for surely <laughs> that would be how the, the it would, I'm writing it as we speak. <laughs> I have to go. I have to go write Muppets Beetlejuice. <laughs> Big thanks to Briaz Muday from Killer Waffles and the Geeky Waffles for coming on to talk about 1988's Beetlejuice. It was a lot of fun to get the chance to talk to them again and delve into this movie that has was so impactful for so many of us that grew up not only with the film, but as we discussed, the, the animated series as well. And who knows if we'll ever see a, a sequel to this. I think it would be very interesting. But I want to hear what your thoughts are on Beetlejuice, as well as the possibility of a Beetlejuice 2. Clearly, I don't think anyone alive really thinks the Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian thing sounds like a good idea. But do you want to see a Beetlejuice sequel at all? Do you agree with what Bree and I had to say about that? Let me know. You can find me on Twitter at Crooked Table. For now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. Keep watching, everybody. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of a little KED.